The Holy Spirit goes by many names. Comforter, advocate, the one who enlightens, the one who brings truth, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the breath of God. This morning I'd like us to look at the Spirit under another name, and that name is Disruptor. There they were, all 120 of them, waiting for the Spirit to come. Exactly what that coming might be like, they didn't know. They knew the prophecy of Joel and all that talk of dreams and visions and such. But who could say what that would really look like? How exactly does one prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, having no better answer than would we, the disciples did the only thing that they could do. They did what they were told. Jesus told them to wait, and so they would wait. And that's what they did. They waited. And then the Spirit came. Now, prior to the Spirit's coming, the disciples were just ordinary folks. They knew each other as well as can be expected of people waiting in the same room for several days. And many of them knew one another from the road, that long, winding trail they had followed in the company of Jesus. They'd been together for some time and in close quarters, which means they probably liked some of their comrades, didn't have an opinion about others, and really could not abide still others. The rubbing and chafing that comes when 120 people wait in a room for something that they cannot even imagine. Now some, the inner circle, tried to make the best of it. They got busy doing the work of the community. There wasn't time to draft any bylaws or create an organizational chart, but they could take care of that unfortunate business of replacing Judas. And from all accounts, that went well, though we don't know how it felt for Joseph, also known as Barsabbas, also known as Justice, who lost out to Matthias. Let's hope that at least he felt okay about the process. <laughs> and so they waited. Then the Holy Spirit came and with fire and Little bits of flame came falling through the ceiling and landing on their heads. Wind came whipping through the windows and kicked up the dust. Not an everyday occurrence in first century Jerusalem, it's safe to say. Wind and fire and little flames on top of everybody's heads. And then everybody started talking at once, praising God and singing and shouting and whooping it up. They got righteously noisy, so noisy that people outside could hear them and were amazed. Now, some of those folks outside were likely pilgrims come to Jerusalem for the festival, and some were immigrants, Jews from other parts of the empire who'd moved back to the homeland, and they were all amazed. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. Now, there's always one in every crowd, you know who I mean, the voice of reason, the condescending voice, an establishment voice, the voice of order and good sense and traditional values. These men are drunk, they said which shows how little they knew about what was going on in front of them, not to mention how little they knew about the effects of too much new wine. So far as I know, while there are definitely side effects from overconsumption, 
Becoming fluent in a foreign language is not one of them. I mean, imagine what Rosetta Stone could do with that if it were true. Now, the voice of condescension, the voice of the know-it-all, the voice of the establishment of order, of tidiness, was not sincerely offering another interpretation of what was happening. They simply wanted to put a stop to it, and so said whatever came into their minds. As Glenn Beck is my witness, as you, if you throw enough mud at people, some will stick. So speaks the voice of reason and good order. But, as if to prove that something big was really happening here, the Spirit chooses Peter to deliver the second most important post-resurrection sermon, the first being Mary's proclamation after leaving the empty tomb. The Spirit chose Peter, the disciple most apt to put his foot in his mouth, the disciple who, all, not all that long before, had denied any knowledge of Jesus, the, the disciple whom Jesus himself had rebuked in the strongest possible language, a disciple whose heart was broken as the risen Christ prodded him into confessing his love three times, a shaky old rock, that Peter. But it's Peter that the Spirit selects for the big post-Pentecost sermon. And he nails it. Peter preaches a sermon worthy of his master, and when he's through, many decided to follow after Jesus. Those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. Now let's think about this for a minute. Imagine something like that happening to us. We're gathered here in prayer, we're waiting for the Spirit to come, and the Spirit comes. The wind whips through the sanctuary, fire comes from the ceiling, little flames dance on every head. And then we start praising God in every human language and somehow miraculously our voices carry and a large crowd gathers outside. And they want to know what's up with these ordinarily very quiet and stable Mennonites. And the Spirit calls on one of us to start preaching and that one tells the story of Jesus and what it means and how it all fits together with God's desire to save us from ourselves. And 3,000 people decide in that moment to give themselves to Christ. And then, in good Anabaptist fashion, they want to be taught what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, and then they're baptized, all 3,000 of them. I mean, imagine what that would be like. Now, the appropriate thing to do in such a circumstance would be to shout, Hallelujah! Right? Take that, Willow Creek. No fancy marketing campaign for us. God just sent the Spirit. And before you know it, boom! 3,000 new people. And it would indeed be an amazing grace, gift beyond measure to this congregation and the community that we serve. But let's be honest, 3,000 people, I mean, where would we put them? We'd need to buy the rest of the block and tear down every house and build a new sanctuary. And all those languages, I mean, how would we decide which one was primary? Which brings up decision making? I mean, imagine a members meeting with 3,120 people attending. How would we ever get anything done? We'd need a new organizational structure. We'd probably have to hire more staff and have a building project the likes of, likes of which we've never dreamed. Then again, imagine what we could do with that many hands and brains and voices. Imagine what it would be like to worship within the midst of such diversity. Imagine the impact we could have on our neighborhood and beyond. Imagine how much more we could contribute financially and otherwise to the various service organizations and mission agencies we currently support. 
Imagine the new initiatives, the new mission, and the new level of engagement with our city. Now imagine the growing sense of nostalgia for the way things used to be. Imagine how it would feel to lose the intimacy of a small, tight-knit group. Imagine the struggle as new forms of worship begin challenging the old. Imagine new rituals being created that reflect our new diversity, but gradually replace what we once thought would last forever. Imagine the pain of that loss and the temptation to look backward and, and the temptation to not just look backward, but to walk backward in search of some earlier golden era. Now imagine the excitement of new energy, the vigorous debates, the wrestling with scripture as folks from quite different backgrounds and experiences begin sharing their individual readings of biblical texts. Imagine the richness that can result when tried and true practices are reconfigured as they are wed to newer understandings. And get this, imagine the potluck meals. <laughs> Food from everywhere. We'd have to have a We'd have to have a Pollock meal every Sunday just to make our way through the variety of ethnic and traditional dishes. Imagine the joy of watching our children grow in the faith in the company of little sisters and brothers from all over the world. Imagine the wonder of it all. Well, that's a lot of imagining, I know. But the more we let our imaginations kind of run wild, the more we imagine the gifts that come with the fire and the water, the more we come to appreciate the size of the disruption that was inflicted upon those disciples on that day of Pentecost. And I use the words inflicted and disruption intentionally. Inflicted because no matter what the disciples may have imagined the coming of the Spirit to be like, I would guess it was nothing like what actually happened. As amazing as they imagined that coming to be, I suspect their imaginings seem like pale, wispy things in the face of what actually did happen. What happened that day was above and beyond whatever they could ask or think, and entirely out of their control, inflicted, indeed. And disruption galore. A solid, steady, first-century Galilean would likely have understood herself to be at the very center of God's intentions toward the world. If not she personally, then her people, the Jews, the children of Abraham. Remember the response to Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth? How poorly that went? And you'll see what I mean. She would certainly have understood that Jews from other places also belonged, that they were her sisters and brothers and part of the chosen nation, but I suspect she'd have been just as provincial and exclusive as we 21st century North American Mennonites are today recognizing our kinship with sisters and brothers in other parts of the world, but really struggling to welcome them as equal members of the clan and equal partners in the clan's mission. So imagine her surprise when she suddenly starts praising God in Parthian. And let me confess, I don't even know if Parthian was a language, but in any case, let's assume that it was for the sake of the argument. Um, she starts praising God in Parthian, right? I mean, who knew Parthian? And yet off she went praising God in a language that she'd never heard spoken and, and suddenly being embraced by a family of Parthian immigrants who'd forgotten how much they'd missed their mother tongue. And her world has changed forever. God is not the exclusive property of her people. God is claiming the whole world and everybody in it and doing so in every language under the sun, an expression of God's delight in human diversity that thrilled her despite herself. Her world... The world of the 120 was forever disrupted by the coming of the Spirit. It was changed forever. I mean, God was the same. 
But God's intentions toward the world were clearly much bigger than she'd imagined. And as we know, what began at Pentecost continued through the early years of the Christian movement. And so just when you think you know your enemies, Paul gets blindsided by the Lord on his way to Damascus. Just when you think you know who's in and who's out, God drops a sheet full of unclean animals in front of Peter and prods him until he goes and spends some time with a Roman centurion. And on and on it goes. The Spirit of God keeps coming, all wind and flame and with water to follow, obviously delighting and flipping over our orderly money changers' tables and chasing us out of our comfortable places and back into the streets where we belong. Disruptor indeed. Wildfire, uncontrollable, unpredictable, game changer, rearranger, flipper of tables and mover of mountains. This is the spirit. This is the spirit who came to the disciples on that Pentecost all those years ago. Widener of doors, opener of gates, the unsettler, the one who's coming, leaves no stones unturned, no hearts unmoved, no walls unbreached. The Holy Spirit, the disruptor. Now, let's be clear, this disruption has a specific purpose. This is not the gleeful havoc-making of the vandal. The Spirit's disruptive presence is purposeful. It disrupts for a reason, and that reason is to break open every barrier we place around the church, to knock down every wall that we erect, to blow open every door that we shut, to set fire to every cool strategy for self-preservation. And all to the end, of bringing humanity into God's loving, saving embrace, to push us out of our comfortable places and push us beyond our human limitations and stretch us beyond our current vocabularies in order to call all people to Jesus Christ. What may seem like chaos to us is, in fact, the Spirit bringing about a new order, a new arrangement, a new Jerusalem, whose gates are never shut, a community, that is far bigger, bolder, more colorful, more diverse, more everything than we can imagine. If in Genesis the Spirit brought order from the formless void, here the Spirit brings disruption to our orderly ways of being Christian in order to bring about a new order, one that better reflects the size and scope and shape of God's intentions toward the world. And that, sisters and brothers, is very good news. And now a word to my younger brothers, Sam, George, Ben, and Jacob. To be fair, to be fair, we probably ought to have waited to welcome you into a membership. Uh, we ought to have waited to baptize you until after we read Acts chapter 2. We ought to have given you full warning uh, about the wild ride that you just climbed onto. I hope we did so in other ways. I hope we gave you glimpses of the disruptive activity of the Spirit, of the unpredictability of the Spirit who goes where it wills of the uncontrollable power of the Spirit to mold us and shape us and challenge us and poke us and prod us and encourage us and lead us into a community more closely approximating what the body of Christ ought to be. I hope you understand that whatever else it may be, the church is God's own community, not ours, and is God's to play with and to create and recreate and shape and use to bring about God's purposes in the world. And that in being baptized and joining the church, you died and were raised into a new life in Christ, a life that is unpredictable and unsafe, but always moving towards salvation. 
And so the same word, the same word to all of you who, like me, have been part of this wild ride for a long time now. The Spirit is alive and well and shaking us up even now by calling Jacob and Ben and Sam and George to become members of this community, by calling them to be baptized, the Spirit is giving us full notice that something new is coming. That coming may be slow, but it is coming. Every new member, every new attender, every new person that walks through these doors and decides to hang her hat here is a sign that change is coming. Each one is a sign of the Spirit's continued blessing of this community, a sign of the Spirit's continued intention to seek and to save all that are lost, a sign of the Spirit's invitation that we not settle in too snugly or become too comfortable or build too many permanent structures because they will someday be shaken in order that God's purposes can continue to be served in and through God's own church. The Spirit continues to disrupt and destabilize and rearrange us and our habits. And so we tighten our seatbelts and hang on and get ready to start shouting God's praises, perhaps in some brand new way we've never experienced before. So we keep our eyes open for the first signs of fire from heaven because, brothers and sisters, the fire will come. It starts with the water of baptism, inevitably ends with tongues of fire. Indeed, that's the baptismal prayer that we recite whenever a new believer has the waters rain down on him or her. And so a last word to my younger brothers, Ben, George, Jacob, and Sam. That prayer we prayed after the water came on your head, asking God to baptize you with the Spirit from above, we meant it, and God heard it, and it will happen. The spirit that called you into the gentle rain of baptism will also bring fire down on your heads and so make you a light for all to see, a light that reveals to the whole world that God is still moving us toward redemption. So keep your eyes peeled, brothers and sisters. Keep looking up and always remember that whatever else the church may be, Whatever else this spirit-inspired community may be, there is one thing, one thing it never really is. It's never boring. Welcome to the body. Hang on to your hats. Here we go. Amen.